Hey there and welcome to Soul Church. Our prayer is that this message encourages you wherever you may be in life. You know, we've been hearing so many stories about what God is doing in people's lives and we'd love to hear yours. So take a second and send your story to stories at soulchurch.com. Thanks again for joining us today and we hope that you enjoy the message. God bless. Well, we're in for a treat tonight. As I said earlier, I had a great morning and with great friends, Will and it's going to be a great night. So there's going to be a number that's going to come up on the screen behind me. And uh, if you have a, a, a question regarding mental health, grief, loss, anything around that area, please text them. We're obviously not going to be able to get through all of them, but we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. And I know Will's got some real wisdom and some insight into that. So uh, he'll be a real blessing. So come on, straight out of Brompton, Will. Come on, give him a hand as he comes up. so much. One of my best friends, everyone. Old friends reunited. Indeed. Welcome everyone online joining us. Would you welcome our online community? Great. Awesome. Welcome. Yeah. Will, Good. how are you? I'm really well. I've had an amazing day. What a welcome here at Soul Church. I feel so full. It's been great. It's really been awesome. Well, we feel honored to have you here, and thank you to Nikki and Pippa Gumbel for releasing you with us for the weekend. Thank you. And Nikki Gumbel's going to be here at the end of the year, so he's going to be speaking. Yeah, we just great. found out that this week as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, so, where you are. Um, yeah, so I'm pastoral chaplain at Asia. I've been, a, I've been a priest in London, a vicar in London for 15 years, and um, I've been working for HTB uh, for the last five, and focusing in on on. On, as a pastoral chaplain, but I, I've become an emotional mental health specialist. So um, I run a charity called the Mind and Soul Foundation with a consultant psychiatrist called Dr. Rob Waller, a clinical psychologist called Dr. Kate Middleton, which was quite funny for a while because I was Will and she was Kate Middleton. You had to be there. It was a, kind of, it was a gag for a while. No, I, I see that. You see that? Good. Um, and um, so what we, what, what we basically, in 2005, I had a breakdown. Um, I was involved in the London bombings at Edgeway Road Station. I put on my dog collar, went under the cordon, uh, went to try and help, ended up hosting a sort of an emergency response out of a little hall that we had right by the, uh, right by the station there. And I, I didn't realize at the time how that was affecting me. I, I was just like in the moment, doing the thing, seeing the stuff. And um, about three months later, I started having like terrible panic attacks, like waking up at nighttime in a cold sweat, literally shaking. And I had no context for that. And actually, my church had no context for that either. And uh, it took me quite a while to recover. It took me a good sort of six months to feel like I was back in a good space. But God really, you know, sometimes he doesn't, he doesn't make these things happen, but he definitely redeems the things that happen to us. And... Um, at that point, uh, Rob, who was a friend of mine from Cambridge, who's the psychiatrist, he helped me a lot. And I started saying, well, if, if, I, as, if I as a Christian leader am experiencing this, surely there must be people in my, in my church who are experiencing this too. But I've just never met anyone. And then um, and he said, well, yeah, there are people out there, but no one talks about it in church. And, and not only that can get complex in church in terms of how we address these things. So we started blogging online uh, in 2005. Now we have, you know, four, three or four million people using our stuff, like we have those sort of hits every year, we have thousands of people online, so if you want to check it out tonight, it's mindandsoulfoundation.org, or uh, on social, so mindandsoulfoundation.org, or on social, at mindandsouluk, or I'm just at Will Vanderhart, so 
um, yeah, just connect with us. But there's a huge community out there of Christians all around the UK and, and now around the world who are struggling with issues of mental and emotional health and want a place that's safe and supportive for them to understand what they're dealing with and find out how to get free and how to get well. First question that's come in is, I have a friend who deals, this is my question, someone's texted it in, I've got a friend who's struggling with mental health, how can I help them? The best thing you can do with a friend who's struggling with mental health is be there for them. I mean, we, what we know clinically is that that community has an incredible value for mental health recovery. Isolation is the enemy of mental health recovery. There are actually mental health units in London that close their doors on a Sunday and send people to church, not because they have a Christian faith, but because they need to be in a safe community. And um, when we, when we uh, listen without prejudice, and we encourage, and we nurture, and we accommodate, and we are hospitable, we are doing the best part of mental health recovery. And, and it's, sometimes in the church, we've, we've said, we treat things a bit like, um, uh, not, not in the same parity as we do physical conditions. Like no one here, there might be a brain surgeon here, but there's probably not very many brain surgeons here if there are any. But none of it, if someone had a, a, a physiological brain condition that required surgery, no one here would go, oh, I've got some nail scissors upstairs. Like, let's go and have a look, shall we, and have a go. Like, but, but lots of people think that they can do that with mental health issues. When actually, if someone was going in for brain surgery, you'd be like, what can I do to support this person? Well, I'd make them a cup of tea. I'd listen to them. I'd pray for them. I'd encourage them. I'd visit them in hospital, something that doesn't often happen to people who are in mental health hospitals. Um, I would send them a card. I would give them a call. But I wouldn't think that I necessarily could meddle with the medicine. And I'll, we'll talk a bit more about that later on. So, so helping us all understand a little bit more about mental health, has mental health always been there? Or is it something that's risen to the surface recently? If so, why is it on the increase? What are the backgrounds to it? So in terms of the, like, the big picture as far as mental health is concerned, is mental health has always been there. There's, there's always been struggles with mental health, just as much as there's always been struggles with physical health. And the reality is that um, there have been seasons where um, mental health has become more apparent in society. Um, the monastic communities of old were the first mental health hospitals of today. And so the church has always had a place in supporting people with mental health issues. Um, the great reformers like Wesley and Whitfield uh, were really passionate about mental health issues and had really progressive views um, and were very supportive um, especially getting people out of institutions that have kind of lost their way, like Bedlam, which was the Bethlehem Hospital of old. So it's always been there. The church sort of left the space at the turn of the century because um, the psychoanalysts arrived, so Sigmund Freud, Kulgastaff, Jung, and others, and suddenly the church got very nervous about talking about psychology and mental health because suddenly there were these other people who were talking about it. And we kind of left the arena, and we, instead we, we stopped talking about mental health in that same way, and, and it became very much divided on spiritual and secular lines. But actually, physical medicine didn't. So people still talked about physical medicine and praying for people, but, but emotional and mental health stuff became either pray for people or see a psychiatrist, but not really both. And so it's, it's been a long journey. When I first started, people said, oh, don't do that. Don't sort of go in that area. People call you the mental priest. I was like, oh. I mean, now I think that's quite a nice label, but at the time I was a bit like, oh, that sounds a bit frightening. Um, and there was a lot of stigma attached. And when I, had, when I had a breakdown, I mean, I was terribly anxious. And one of my pastor leaders 
he, he said I was just tired. So he just denied the fact that I had a mental health problem. And the other one uh, is very prophetic. You know, in, it, it, he spiritualized it all. So he, he thought that the devil had got into me. So he was trying to cast the devil out of me. And so one of them was over-spiritualizing and one of them was under-spiritualizing. And I was there in the middle. Fortunately, my, my secular doctor, who, who wasn't a Christian, was really helpful. Um, <laughs> Someone's just texted in saying, um, how do I know that I need professional help? So they're feeling these feelings, but when does, it, when does it come to a point where I actually need to reach out? So one of the challenges of, of mental health is, with physical health, you can, you can have an illness or you could not have it. But mental health is a continuum. So we all have a mental health problem. And, and, and if you like, that, that means that we all exist on a continuum of mental wellness and mental illness. And that why, that's why the one in four statistics really unhelpful. You know, you hear a lot on the television now, you, there's a one in, one in four people struggling with mental health issues. 100% of people struggle with their mental health. It's a bit more like physical exercise, like you're running a lot at the moment, and, and running helps you get fitter, and getting fitter enables you to accomplish incredible things like running seven marathons in seven days. But, but that, that fitness can't be qualified as you're either fit or unfit, you're on a scale of fitness. And mental health is similar. We, we will all experience mental health or mental distress at some time or other. Depression is actually identical in its manifestations as grief. And grief is the most natural experience in the world. Everyone here will have grieved or, or, or is grieving. And the, the, the diagnosis for grief, the statistical diagnostic for grief is very similar to that of depression, apart from the origins aren't clear for depression. So experiencing some emotional distress is absolutely normal. And we should not be afraid of what we call the purple emotions. And, you know, sometimes in the Christian world, we can think that Christians should only ever be happy, smiling, joy-filled, and floating about three inches off of the floor. When actually Jesus, in the Gospels, experiences all sorts of emotional distress to the extent that he sweats drops of blood. You know, Jesus grieves for Lazarus. He's weeping. He's anxious. He's... Um, extremely aggressive in the temple courts, whipping traders. I mean, these aren't all really shiny emotions, but they're all emotions. And as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of emotions that are a little bit more uncomfortable. Every significant mental health issue comes from a continuum of emotional distress. The question often is, how deep is my distress and how persistent is my distress? And is my distress prompting me to any sort of action which puts me or others at risk? And I think sometimes it's hard to know. The key thing is often breaking the fear of stigma and isolation and talking to someone about how you're feeling. And often it's other people who are better at identifying our fears and struggles than we are in ourselves. Um, so if you are tonight thinking, I'm actually, I've been significantly unhappy for six months my encouragement to that person would be, the best thing you could possibly do is go and see your GP and talk that through with them. They might say, look, I think you're experiencing some low mood, but I can see a number of reasons why. But equally, they might say, look, I think actually you're struggling with depression right now, and I think I can help you. And so it requires us to step out of the box and begin to talk, and that's the beginning of our recovery. That's really helpful, and I know that's going to have helped at least a handful of people tonight. Um, just you touching on grief there. I've had a text in from someone saying that uh, 11 years ago their dad died and they haven't been able to visit the grave 
they just can't do it. They've tried, but they can't get past the gates. Uh, any, any help for them with that? So, I mean, grief is, as I said, the most natural, but one of the most powerful emotions that we experience. And recovery from grief is, is a real challenge because grief requires a level of determination, if you like, to engage with it. As long as we part grief or leave grief, um, we tend not to actually walk through our grief. The thing about grief is you don't get better from grief. Life changes when you grieve. And it's never about keeping life going as it is. It's about accepting life as it is now. It's not about holding on to the past. It's about walking through the past and living now in the present. Um, Sigmund Freud, for all his faults, said lots of very intelligent things. But one was that emotions um, don't get buried dead. They get buried alive. And actually, when we bury our emotions alive, they live another day. It's a bit like a glacier. If it swallows up the body of a climber, that climber doesn't ever really disappear. They just reappear out of the glacier 20 or 30 years later. And the same can be true with our grief experience. The, the struggle with grief is that we get frozen in our grief from yesterday today. And we, we have a Lord who loves us and longs for us to not recover from grief, but walk through grief holding his hand. And actually, he walked through grief, and he calls us to walk through grief too. And um, the best way to journey through grief is to journey together. And I know there are a number of fantastic courses that run that enable uh, you to what we call habituate grief, which is to come to terms with your grieving experience and walk through that, being changed by it. And um, one, one is called the bereavement journey. But um, cruise bereavement counselors are also fantastic. If you're stuck in a place of grief, then my best advice is to see a professional grief counselor and to begin that journey, either as an individual or as a collective. And sometimes collectives are a really powerful place for people to make those steps of recovery. There's a little film I just did recently on um, recovering from grief and, um, or walking through grief, and that's just on the HTB website about Jesus meeting uh, the woman at the gates. Yeah. Yeah, this one is kind of tied to grief. It's kind of gre grief uh, connected to guilt. It said, my dad committed suicide. I never knew him closely. How do I deal with the fact that I never got to forgive him because unforgiveness makes you bitter? And I believe that's one of my roots. Well, that is a really complex question because it includes a number of different aspects. The, the thing about forgiveness is that you can forgive people who you cannot converse with. So if you've experienced uh, something in your past where it's no longer possible to have a conversation around forgiveness, you can still make a decision to forgive that person. You can make a decision to forgive someone who has no remorse for what they did to you. If, you've, you know, if someone's done something terrible to you and they're, they're not sorry, you can still forgive them because the power of Jesus to forgive others is in you. And you can decide to choose that today and say, you know, I forgive my father for what he did even though I haven't got an opportunity to, to if you like, uh, be reconciled with him. We tend not to now use the word commit. The suicide was um, a criminal offense for a number of years, but it's been decriminalized. So when we use the word commit, we, we, we're, we're referring to a time when suicide carried a lot of social stigma, and people who died by suicide were buried outside of church burial grounds. But um, it's an interesting theological phenomenon, because it's, it's my belief that suicide is not an act that you commit in your right mind, but that anyone who decides to take their own life by suicide 
are demonstrating a manifestation of an illness for which they are no longer responsible. So when people come to the position of actually deciding to take their own life, they're not making a decision which leaves them culpable for their action. They're actually in a state of process which is beyond their own determining. And I don't personally believe that anyone who takes their life by suicide, who is a, someone who's already given their life to Jesus, is going to face a judgment for that. But it's the manifestation of an illness, just as much as dying of cancer might be the, a manifestation of an illness that you cannot control at that point. So my argument would be that no one is in their right mind who takes their own life. It's actually very difficult to do that. More than that, actually, it's, it's in the scriptures. I, I find it fascinating, 1 Kings um, 19, that we see Elijah, and he is, you know, he's, he's suicidal. He's experiencing what we call suicidal ideation, and he's running from Jezebel, and it says um, from verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Now take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And, uh, you know, here's a man who wanted to die. And God doesn't come at him and level judgment. Elijah, you despicable character, you know, how could you want to throw away your life in this way? Instead, he lays down and sleeps under the broom tree, and then, and then the Lord wakes him, arise and eat, he says. Interestingly, when someone is sectioned to a psychiatric hospital, the first thing that they're offered is often a KFC bargain bucket, because if you're suffering from psychological distress, you often haven't eaten for three or four days. And so the first thing they do is give someone a really good meal, and then often a sedative to help them to sleep because sleep transforms their experience or their intention. And only after they've eaten significant amounts of food and slept for a significant amount of time does the work of therapy begin. And I love the way that God treats Elijah with a, psycho -psych a biopsychosocial model of recovery. He basically lets him sleep, then he wakes him and feeds him, he lets him rest a little bit more, bakes some bread, gives him some water, lays down again, then the Lord comes a second time, arise and eat. Then he arises and drinks again. And then he went in the strength and had 40 days and 40 nights on Horeb, the mountain of God. You know, so God, God knows how to deal with these things. God's, God's right at the heart of the recovery. Okay. Keep your questions coming, whether they're online, through Facebook, through text message. Keep the questions coming. Um, someone's texting saying, mental health has crushed my marriage. I've had a strong faith throughout my life, and now I'm going through a divorce because I wasn't strong enough to help them. How do I move on? Well, again, it's a, it's a, it's a huge question. Um, how you move on from a marriage that is that's broken down, that is in itself a whole, a whole journey, and I'd recommend things like the divorce and separation recovery course, trying to work that stuff out. There is a lot of pressure inside marriages when mental health becomes acute. There are an awful lot of marriages where mental health is a significant issue. If one in four of us are struggling with a mental health issue, a particularly prominent mental health issue at any time, then obviously a significant number of marriages are impacted by mental health. But just because one of you has a mental health issue does not mean you're not going to have a happy marriage. Men having a mental health issue in marriage does not mean that your marriage is at risk. What it does, it, it, it requires a level of additional understanding and support and in this instance, I'm sad to say that obviously the marriage couldn't recover from what it was that took place. But I, I want to make sure that anyone out there who's listening online or in the room doesn't feel anxious because they're struggling with a mental health issue that somehow that's going to put their marriage at risk. If, you, if my wife Louie was sitting up here right now 
and you were interviewing her about me, I think we did an interview actually at Leadership Conference last year about our marriage and mental health, I, she would say that my mental health problem was a gift to our marriage. Because when we first got married, I was the like, strong, dynamic, Christian leader is going to do everything. You know, sorry, I didn't go around saying it in that loud. That, that would have been really bad for my marriage if I'd had that. You know, but I was the sort of, you know, I was like the superhero character of our marriage. Everything was fixable. And I was always charging around the place doing a thousand different things. And I was five years older than my wife. So my wife's like, oh, you're the leader, da-da-da-da, you're the leader. And, and then suddenly I'm absolutely incapacitated. And I'm like shaking you know, someone presses the doorbell, I start shaking. I wake up at night, I'm having multiple panic attacks. I'm literally, I, I'm like thinking, oh my goodness, what is going on in my life? My wife, it turns out, is the strong person, a strong leader, strong partner in our marriage. She suddenly takes the lead in our marriage. So our marriage is transformed. Because actually, when I recover, I, 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 we've unearthed incredible gold. And actually, my, my marriage is stronger. My wife is an incredibly strong, powerful woman of the Lord. She's discipling me, counseling me, supporting me, encouraging me. I'm suddenly feeling the strength of my wife. Then my wife struggles with postnatal depression after my second child nearly died. And I'm able to come back in and then support my wife. But this is what a good marriage is, John. It's about mutual love, respect, encouragement, and support. And I would say again... Marriage can offer a lot of strength because mental health issues create isolation. Marriage can offer a lot of strength to an individual who's struggling. But you are called to be your wife or your husband's lover, not their therapist. And one of the ways in which relationships do struggle is when one partner becomes what we call codependent on the other partner and they treat their partner not as their lover but as their therapist. And my encouragement is always to get your medical help outside of your marital home, but make sure you get a balance in your marriage of love, support, and understanding. And I know that in my worst moments, I was probably slightly narcissistic and self-orientated, and I had to work hard to make sure I gave my wife the value that she needed as much as receiving the love and encouragement that I needed. You have to hold on to the fact that marriage is a mutual partnership. It's not a one-way street. This is brilliant. <clears throat> People are asking, yes, happy to see a, uh, a doctor, but are there practical things that I can do in my everyday to maybe kind of work through mental health issues as well? Yeah, um, there are so many things that we can do. Um, like, when you, when you get physically, or you often suddenly start thinking, oh, I should, I should exercise more, I should drink less, I should be healthier, I should make better choices... And, and often, that's a, that kick-starts a new sort of regime. When we struggle with mental health issues, it can often kick-start a better way of living, which is more protective of our mental well-being. Mental health conditions are split into two different categories. One category called neurotic, and one category we call um, psychotic or seriously enduring. And they're, they're quite different, just as much as medical conditions are quite different. Issues like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, and bipolar 1 are not issues that can be um, propagated, if you like, through poor lifestyle choices generally. Some, some, psycho some psychosis is 
relative to drug misuse, particularly skunk cannabis misuse, that can induce transient psychosis. That's when you lose sight of who you are or experience um, affect, things like um, hearing voices or, or, or becoming delusional. But many of those uh, respond to life trauma because someone carries a disposition for them. They're also quite unusual, quite rare. 6.1% of all mental health diagnoses in our society relate to anxiety and depression. And they're much, much more common. So it's a bit like medical health in, in terms of physical health. There are some conditions that are extremely rare. They're sometimes genetic, and you can't really tell whether you're going to get them or not. There are other conditions that are much more common, and there's some things you can do about them. And um, I realized the build-up to my um, anxiety breakdown could all be blamed on the London bombings. It was a really convenient story. Oh, yeah, terrorists came to our city, and you know people got really hurt and killed, and I was just in that pressure point, and then this happened. But I could look back to years before that experience and acknowledge that I was overworking, under-resting, under-exercising, I was drinking way too much coffee, I was never ever switching off, and actually my lifestyle was on a trajectory to burnout well before it was on a trajectory to breakdown. And so actually, you know, what, what my anxiety breakdown taught me was actually there was another way of living. And when, when, I, when my psychologist friends schooled me in panic attacks and I quickly became, overcame those, but once I'd overcome them, I knew there were things I had to keep on doing to help me keep on overcoming. And actually, I haven't had a panic attack, praise God, now for 13 years. So that's a good, that's a good journey. What, what, I, what I love about the scriptures is there's this present continuous tense that Paul particularly keeps on writing. And this present continuous tense makes us more than conquerors now, more than conquerors you know, then and more than conquerors in the future, that there's this sort of active, present, continuous action that we both are, we will be, and we forever more will be. So there's this stage of kind of doing what's real now and keeping on doing it towards the future. And so there are things that we can do to support our mental health. And as I said, there's lots of healthy choices we can make, but we also need to recognize that we need simple things to do well. Sleep is a very, very important one. Turning off our screens so we sleep well is really, really important. Making sure we have enough alone time is really important. Making sure we have a high quality of personal relationships where we can be honest and communicate with compassion, those are really important. A community like this church is really, really important for people's mental well-being. So there are things that can support your mental health over the long haul. Most importantly, if you do get unwell, they're also the things that will help you through that difficult season. Isolation is the enemy of mental health. That's a big takeaway tonight. Mm. There. Um, a lot of people are texting in about social media. You just touched on screen time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a really... A <laughs> well, there was a really interesting study the other day that said screens aren't going to kill you, which is good news for everyone, especially me, because I'm, I'm always on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but what we know is social media and, and, and screens put us under a lot of pressure. So... We haven't really been created to work 24-7, 365. You know, even God rested after six days of work, took a full 24-hour period off. So we have this idea that we can stay switched on all the time and deal with all sorts of complex narratives. If you think about far farming in Norfolk, like this, old, uh, this area was the breadbasket of England for a very long time. 
So the farmer gets up when it gets light, goes to bed when it gets dark. He has a job to do, which is very quiet most of the time. It's seasonal, so sometimes he's up working hard, sometimes he's resting whilst the seed's growing in the ground. It's a very different lifestyle to the lifestyle that we lead. Basically, we've been created in a way which means that we spend some time on, but we should spend some time off. The issue with phones is not that phones are bad for your health or that phones are sometimes somehow like, you know, damaging your brain by you looking at them. The issue with phones is that they give you the opportunity to be on all the time. And our brains are designed to recover when we're sleeping. So our brain cells are actually renewed only when we're sleeping. You can actually kill someone by keeping them awake for too long. So I think four days without sleep begins to become a threat, a life threat. And so your brain needs to recover whilst you're sleeping. And if your quality of sleep is very poor, you'll begin to experience psychological disturbance. Actually, you might remember Ellen MacArthur, who sailed around the world on Kingfisher. Most round-the-world sailors, including Ellen MacArthur in her great book, Kingfisher, experience hallucinations and delusions through a lack of sleep. So she starts seeing other members of her crew, even though she's an alone sailor. That's what happens when we don't have enough sleep. And that's quite a fair warning to us that sleep is a really important measure of our brain recovery and therefore doing quality sleep, which requires a control of screens, is an important thing for us to do. Switching on, but switching off again at clear times. Do you think as well with the rise in social media um, comparison, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, destination disease, always looking at where we want to be, do you think that has an... Uh, yeah, I mean, look, on, I'm doing, on the hard side, screen use is bad for our sleep. But on the softer side, what screen use does to us, particularly what social media does to us, is it can propagate feelings of discontent. And actually, for most of us, when we're feeling emotionally resilient, we look at a friend's amazing Instagram feed. They always look absolutely incredible in any light. Their skin is unblemished. They look buff, even like after Christmas. Every photo, you're like, wow, I am living the wrong life. But something in us, that emotion, our emotional resilience, which is our ability to cope with emotional hits, it bounces back. Because we kind of go, ah, it's probably like, you know, doctored or airbrushed or whatever. Like, God bless them for their wonderful life. But, but a little bit of us feels a bit like, yeah, that's all right. But when we're emotionally vulnerable, that's when these things become problematic. So actually, when we're low, and there are a number of reasons why we might be low, but when we're low, we see those pictures, and rather than being able to bounce out of them and go, oh, yeah, that's fine, we start feeling like, actually, our life is really rubbish and slightly pointless and hopeless. And when those messages turn around from that person towards us, that's when the alarm bells need to start ringing for us. Because actually, those messages tend to be like petrol poured on the problems of our own lives. Weirdly, it's also quite addictive when you're low emotionally to go on social media. Because you get a dopamine hit from the instantaneous nature of the gift. It keeps on giving. So you feel better and better by looking in the first instance, but you feel worse and worse as you look. And the trouble we have is discerning when the moment has come for us to walk away from the screen. I would say when you're low, the worst thing you can do is to roll on to Instagram and start looking at other people's luxury lifestyles. That's the time to start working in a homeless shelter. Because gratitude is the antidote to our place of suffering.
Brilliant. Absolute gold. Um, someone said, in my line of work, a lot of people reach out to me when they're feeling depressed or suicidal. What's the best thing to say to someone who's lost all hope? Well, firstly, to that person, you're doing an amazing thing by being the presence of Jesus in your working environment. So whatever you're doing, keep on doing it. But remember that Jesus is the Savior. We're not. And we have to keep putting our hands into the pockets of God to take out his resources rather than spending our own because we haven't got the resources that we need to be able to support other people to that extent. I'm pastoral chaplain of 10,000 people, and I have you know, an online community of a couple of million people, and I definitely know that I have serious limitations in my ability to help everyone who's struggling with mental and emotional health issues. And so we have to be, if we want to be helpers, really boundaried. In fact, boundaries are a really important part of our healing, but also the healings of others. Personality disorder, which is quite a common mental health problem in society, really can only, people with personality disorder only get better through our boundaries because we're modeling what is a good boundary to live by and we're showing them this is actually how I live. So if you're helping others with their mental health issues, the key thing is to recognize that you aren't the resource, God is, but you can be a great signpost to life and to living. And we can listen fully and freely and also know that we don't have to have all of the knowledge and insights of a clinician, just like we wouldn't expect to have all the knowledge and insights of a doctor. My first recommendation is always to signpost someone to see their GP, even if they've offered something quite innocuous, because you never know what's behind the offering. If someone says, oh, I'm a bit low at the moment, then they might be actually saying, I've, I've been feeling suicidal for months, but they, this is the first chance they've had to say anything about their emotional health. So always expect an iceberg. What you get is only 20% of what's really going on under the surface. You can refer to an organization like the Mindsoft Foundation where people can go and find help and signposting. There are some brilliant organizations out there who support people with mental and emotional health issues. And if you're passionate tonight, the best thing I can encourage you to do is get informed yourself. Encourage people to talk, but equally know when it's time to stop. And we can feel really like, oh my goodness, I think like, I can't take any more. When you, as soon as you start feeling like that, it's time to say, look, I've really found it helpful listening to you. I hope you found it helpful talking it through. But I think you need to get some more help, and I'd love to put you in touch with an organization that can help you. Mind here is really active in Norwich. There's a really great Mind base here, and Mind run great groups um, where people can gather and deal with their issues. But the GP is the ticket to beginning the recovery. The church is an, alongside presence and, you know, knowing that we aren't here to provide clinical input, but supportive input is really important for people. They keep on showing up for church, keep on coming along, keeping on being part of this community, keeping on walking with the wounded, but not over-focusing on people's recovery. I, I represent loads and loads of people with mental health problems. They always say the same thing to me when I'm going to do talks. Please tell all the Christians we don't want to talk about mental health stuff all the time. Because people who are depressed like to play golf too. And, you know, people who are anxious like to go to the cinema as well. People with schizoaffective disorder are really interested in chess as much as they are psychosis. So it's really helpful to talk about pe to people with mental health issues about the normal things of life. Sometimes as Christians we can think, oh, you've got a mental health problem. You must be at the front for prayer because you've got a mental health problem. Actually... A quarter of the people here have got mental health problems, but they've got an awful lot of other things they want to pray about. So it's about rehumanizing people, and people with mental health issues often feel stigmatized and dehumanized, and that's a key work of the church, I think.
Yeah, that's excellent. Just, just on that, you touched on prayer there, you know, and I don't think we can underestimate the power of prayer in this process. Um, how do we pray for people, especially if they've asked for prayer, how do we pray for people who are struggling with mental health? You know, what are some good ways to engage with God through this? This is, this is a really huge area. We actually, um, with a little charity, we put a little film on our website this year based around this, how do I pray for a, a Christian struggling with mental health issues? The, 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 I would say the least helpful model is the casting out model, um, which is unfortunately a very common model for people who have got mental health problems to experience. The, the reality is that a Christian with a mental health problem is mo- no more likely to be experiencing some sort of demonic or spiritual influence than someone who's got diabetes or, or bunion. The, the, the fact is that, um, that yes, um, some manifestations of psychotic illness look quite scary and might look quite spiritual, but actually they're very organic. And you, 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 know, you can't medicate demons. So if someone's demonized and you give them antipsychotic medication, a demon doesn't take antipsychotic medication. So they're never going to get well by taking antipsychotic medication. So if someone's taking antipsychotic medication, they've got well, it's an organic problem. It's a health problem. It's not a spiritual problem. And sometimes we can have this idea that actually, if someone's got a mental health problem, we've got to do a sort of spiritual deliverance activity, which is actually really terrifying. If you've got an anxiety disorder and you come forward and you think you're struggling with anxiety and then someone seems to suggest actually you're struggling with the devil, that's really scary. And then you're really thinking, now I've got something to be really anxious about. Um, Equally, if I'm coming forward and I'm depressed and then someone starts telling me that my spiritual life or my faith levels must be extremely low, then I'm really depressed. Then Then I feel hopeless and I feel useless and worthless spiritually. And surely, I'm just always thinking, surely that's not what God wants. So when you're going to pray for someone with a mental health problem, the first thing I always say is ask them what they want you to pray. So if someone comes forward and says, look, I've got a mental health problem. I've recently been diagnosed. Say, oh, that must be really hard for you. That must be really challenging. What what would you like me to pray for? And they might say, well, I'd love you to pray that I come to terms with my diagnosis. So pray for that. Uh, they might say, look, I really want the comfort of the Lord because I just feel really isolated. Pray for that and then invite them around for lunch. Uh, they might say, look, I, I feel really low and I really want my mood to change. Say, God, I really want you to bless this child of yours. I pray you'd help them with their medication regime, that they'd be really diligent. I pray you'd raise their mood. I pray that they work hard in therapy and you'd walk with them in it. But pray in a supportive prayer. Like we'd pray for someone who's going in for surgery and say, you pray for the surgeons and you pray for the operation. So pray in a way that's supportive of the medical work as well as the psychological work and the spiritual work. So we're a whole person. And and prayer helps. I mean, like, prayer really helps. When people have prayed for me in a way that's supportive, I felt so liberated. And we've tried to make that model, you know, a model of saying, leave everyone who you pray for who's struggling with mental health issues feel loved, affirmed, and a child of God. Because that's all the things that God would want them to feel. And if your prayer doesn't do that work, then you probably shouldn't be praying a prayer for them. Okay, got time for a couple more. Um, I'm struggling with mental health. Is there any specific scriptures in the Bible that could help me? Oh, there are so many scriptures that can help you. But, um, I mean, just that passage I read to you from Kings is just an important one. Um, 
I, I think it's fascinating in Scripture that, you know, that Elijah and, and David were, you know, deeply sort of depressed and at points, you know, verging on, on suicidal. And um, I find that the emotions of Scripture are so powerful and illuminating and that God's, God's right there in us. I, I've always found that the ultimate um, supernatural uh, value of Scripture in my struggles has been in knowing that I'm a child of God. And, you know, the new book I just was talking about this morning about belonging to God, it's been, for me, a real light, a cry of the heart that, that we are children of God, created in his image for works he's prepared in advance for us to do. Like, I never would have envisaged that this would be the work that he would have called me to do, the work of mental, emotional health recovery. But, but it's the one he prepared for me to do in advance. And I think when you're struggling with mental health and you know that you're a child of God and that God's got a purpose for your life, then there's hope for you. We, we talked about well, we've been worshiping today with a spirit of renewing hope and that there's hope in what we pray for. There's a hope in our gathering. There's a hope in Christ. That, that the whole of Scripture is, is just dripping with hope. And, and when I'm supporting people who aren't Christians, the one thing I really want them to have is hope. And I find hope here. And I find hope on the cross. And I, hope, I find hope in the empty tomb. And I find hope in the words of Jesus over my life. But whether you're well or ill... Knowing that you're known, loved, and held by God is the greatest comfort. And then knowing that you're part of an advancing kingdom and that you're going to a destination of heaven, uh, that enables us to do with all sorts of hardship and challenge. You know, when I was really struggling in the body, I, I just kept thinking, you know what? This might be for a time. It might be for a long time. But it's not going to be forever because ultimately I'm secure in Christ Jesus. So... I would encourage anyone to keep on reading. We've got loads of stuff on, on the site that helpful Bible studies around uh, the Scriptures and how they can help you. Most people feel nervous, if I'm honest, about the Scriptures because they think they're going to find stuff in there that can condemn them. And um, you know, I, was, I was finding it, you know, it's amazing how we can cherry-pick Scriptures that condemn us emotionally and not find all of the ones that affirm us. So worry is a classic. You know, everyone's like, oh my goodness. Struggling with anxiety, I'm a terrible, you know, I'm committing some you know, terrible sin because I'm struggling with anxiety. Because it says don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, bring a request to God. Obviously, that's true. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you know, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious in itself. Sufficient for the day because it has its own trouble. And that's hard to interpret, but Jesus doesn't say don't be anxious about today. He says don't be anxious about tomorrow. So it's actually a really good piece of cognitive behavioral therapy. And Jesus is saying, look, it's quite natural for you to be worried about today because there's stuff to worry about. But if you just focus on today and not tomorrow, then you'll start doing better, which is absolutely true. So it's just the wisdom of Scripture, you know, actually. It's the wisdom of science, too. Um, and that's encouraging. Does that make sense? A lot of sense. Yeah. Come on, would you put your hands together for Will van der Hart? Absolutely fantastic. I'm going to jump off, and Will, why don't you just kind of bring it all to a conclusion, and yeah. let's see what God does in these final moments, eh? Yeah, great. <clears throat> I, um, have I got enough time to share that story again that I shared, John? Shall I share that story again? Oh, it's a bit silly, but I thought it was, maybe it would cheer everyone up. Um, so, um, when I, when I was going to get married, I, um, I, my, my wife, now Louie, we were walking on the street together and, and um, she'd entered this competition 
Um, I didn't know. She'd entered this competition for, um, to win a holiday. And uh, my phone went, because she put my number down, because she didn't have a mobile phone at the time. And, and then she, I passed the phone over when they asked for it, and then, and then she got the phone, and then she started jumping up and down, saying, we've won, we've won. I'm like, we've won what? She says, oh, we've won a, we've won a holiday. And I was like, it's a timeshare. Surely it's a timeshare. It's like, it's a scam. And I'm like naturally cautious. So she was like, no, no, we've won, we've won. I've, I've entered a competition and we've won. Anyway, it turned out that we'd won a luxury honeymoon of a lifetime to the North Mali Atoll of um, the, the Maldive Islands, to this place called the Taj Exotica and Spa, which is a six-star resort. And, um, and, and it, was, it was actually true. But the, 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 the catch was it was flights and accommodation in this hut on stilts over the sea. Um, but it was, it was bed and breakfast only. And, and, and I phoned up the island, and I'm like, you know, hi there, um, we're just students at the moment, and we, we haven't really got very much money, and I just wondered if you had any, like, supermarkets on your island? And the guy goes, oh, no, sir, we've got a luxury goods store, and we've got five restaurants, but we haven't got a supermarket. I didn't know what the Maldives were like at the time. It's a little island, you know, surrounded by sand. And, and um, so I said, oh, well, how much is the sort of cheapest thing in your restaurant? And he said... He said, oh, it starts at about $80 for a main course. So I'm like, $80 per head? He's like, oh, yes. And I was like, $80, that's like a month's worth of living as a student, right? So anyway, we had a brainwave. We, 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 we filled up two rolls on, roll-ons. One, one was just like sarongs and board shorts and stuff. And, 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 and the other one, we went to Tesco's and we filled up with pot noodles and neutral grain bars. And so, like, so we, we rolled on super smug onto this plane. We jetted off to like one of the most exclusive resorts in the world. And we, we just could not believe ourselves. And it was unbelievable. Like I've never seen anything like it before in life. We were in this incredible palatial place on stilts, which was, which was bigger than our flat that we lived in. And, and we realized that you know, this was a blessing from the Lord. So we were super thankful. So, but I was trying to work out how we were going to do this really well without spending any money. So breakfast on the first day. I go into the breakfast buffet, which was incredible. And I, and I just, you know, sucked it in. I'm just going to hit this one out of the park. So I start with the English breakfast, full English. Then I'm on to continental French. Then I'm having the, like the Malay breakfast. Then I'm having the Maldivian breakfast. There's even curry for breakfast. I'm having that. I'm going down the fruit line. I'm hitting all the pastries. I put pastries in my pockets. And then when I've got through, then they have this lassie bar, which are these like incredible milkshakes that have like a thousand calories. Like I neck a couple of those too. And I could see these guys, these Maldivian waiters, they're looking at me like, flip, where does that skinny guy put all that stuff? Like what's he eat for lunch and like dinner? I was thinking, well, actually, at lunchtime I have a neutral grain bar. And at dinner, sitting on the balcony of our like, thousand dollar a night banda hut over the Indian Ocean me and my wife were eating cheeky chow mein and spicy beef pot noodles that's 75p a crack all week we go off like this super smug like we're living the dream we're rolling like JLo and friends and and we we, we are eating Nutri-Grain bars and pot noodles at night time every breakfast it was like by the end of the week, these guys are nudging each other like I'm some sort of animal. I'm coming in there, smashing the breakfast again. They're like high-fiving me as I go out. They can't believe how much I'm putting away. They got no idea. But like we, we bought a bit of room, you know, we bought a couple of snacks at the bar to kind of supplement our diet of pot noodles. And, um, and, and my wife said to me at the end of the week, she said, you know, we better check the bill. That's what responsible adults do. They check the bill apparently. 
So I was like, oh, you know, we should do that. So, I, so she's lying on a sun lounger, and I go off to the concierge, and I ask them for the bill to check. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm saying, can I check the bill, please? And they printed out a letter, and they put it in a gold envelope for me, which was strange, because I was going to open it straight away anyway. But I, like, I opened the envelope, and I, and, I, and I unfolded the paper, and there was one water sport thing that me and my wife had done in, in the week there, but there was nothing else on the sheet. I said, you know, what about the, the bits and pieces that we'd ordered from the bar? And, and the concierge looked at me really confused. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you know, the food that we ordered from the bar. He said, he said you're all inclusive, sir. <laughs> he said, you can have whatever you want. He said, you could eat one of any of the five luxury restaurants we've had on our, you could have room service, you could have anything you like. He said, sir, have you tried the lobster thermidor in our specialist seafood restaurant? You can choose your own lobster from the tank. $390 a head. This was our last night. It was after dinner. I went back, found my wife, still lying out, just chilling out in the evening. Lying out. She looked at me like I was white as, white as a sheep. She says, how expensive was it? I was like, love, that is the problem. You know, I felt sick to the pit of my stomach, but thankful because I realized that God was showing me something that day. He showed me that I could live bed and breakfast as a child of the king, or I could be full board. And, and you know what? God doesn't call any of us to be bed and breakfast with him. He, he doesn't invite us into his holy courts and then say, oh, by the way, you've you got to stay on your own in your own hut eating pot noodles whilst everyone else is dining with me. He invites us in for a full board experience. You know, and I reckon that there are many people here who are struggling with mental and emotional health issues. Or maybe members here of this church who, whose partners are or children are or elderly parents are. And you feel like, oh, I just feel like I'm, I'm just dining poor with God right now. And that's just not what God wants for your life. You might be struggling in the body, but you are part of this family. You might be struggling in the mind, but you're part of this family and you're no less of a child of God because of that struggle than any other person here. Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to experience wholeness and fulfillment in this family. And whether you've got a, a serious long-term condition which might take you on this journey until you, you enter the, your heavenly courts, or whether you've got a transient journey through some dark night of the soul, you are equally valuable and loved by God. So I want you just to pray right now. Maybe you just want to close your eyes and open your hands and, and say, I, 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 don't want, I want to be dining full board with God. Maybe you're here as a visitor tonight. And you just say, that's, I want that. And if that's you, Jesus is just calling you tonight. He's inviting you to his table. He's paid the price by dying. And he's won the victory by rising. And now he's standing at the door of your heart. And he is asking you, will you come and dine at my table? Will you come and dine with me? And all you have to just do is just echo this prayer in your own heart. Jesus, I am so broken. There's so many things in my life that I regret. And I'm so sorry. I believe you. I see you as the light of the world. And I want to just, I want to accept your invitation tonight. I want to eat with you. I want to dine at the table of the king. I want to thank you that you've invited me to sit and be with you. And so I just say to you, Jesus, come into my life right now. Come, transform my life. 
Show me that I'm your child. Show me that you love me. Welcome me in, Lord, to this, your church family. And send your Holy Spirit right now as a deposit of your love for me. Come and dwell in my heart. Sometimes the simplest things can have the longest impact in our lives. Maybe that if that's you tonight, you just come, you just you pray that prayer. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's just a moment of, of commitment. You just want to raise your hand and say, yeah. Just whilst eyes are closed and heads are bowed. Thank you. Thank you. Just say, yes, Lord, that's for me. Maybe if you're online right now, you want to just put a hand on your heart. Just say, yes, Lord, that's, that's for me. That's what I want you to do. If you prayed that prayer and you want to chat to one of the team afterwards, they'd love to give you a Bible. If you're online, we'd love you to kind of to email in or just to connect in and one of the team will get back to you and have a chat with you during the week. But this for all of us, just pray right now. Particularly if you're struggling with your own emotional mental health right now. Jesus, we want to thank you that you're saviour, but you're also healer. And healer, we want to invite you to come right now by the power of your spirit. And we want to touch anyone in the room who's struggling with their emotional and mental health, anyone out there online who's watching, who's struggling with their emotional and mental health, anyone whose child or parent is struggling with their emotional and mental health right now, we want to pray, Jesus, you'd meet them in a supernatural way. Come in, Lord. Would you calm the storm? Would you speak your peace over them? And would you transform them with your love? We pray for your blessing on them. We pray for the ability that they might have to speak about their experiences, to receive all of the clinical and psychological support that they need, but also that they might know the love of the church. They might know the fellowship of believers. They might know the community of this place. And so we thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. Send your spirit on us, Lord, in great measure tonight and bring your healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We'll sing. Come on, why don't we put our hands together and thank Will van der Haar for what was an outstanding message. Absolutely brilliant. Man, that's, that's the kind of message you want to listen to, but it's also the kind of message you want to cop, get a copy to your friends. So send them to our app, send them to podcasts, and that's just a message that's going to help people and set them up for a win. So come on, one more time, let's thank Will for being here away from his family. All the work that went into that. And also, the best news of all is that people in this service made a decision to follow Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. So come on, let's congratulate. Thank everyone that raised your hand. Amazing decision. Well done. So if you prayed that prayer, this is really important news. If you prayed that prayer, we want to give you a gift. It's a Bible. It's going to help you. So as you leave the service, right out in the foyer, you'll see people waving these Bibles. They are waiting for you. They would love to give this to you as a gift. And if you would, would you just hang out with us for a little bit? We, we call it the Connect Lounge. Just before you, you leave, on the right side of the uh, exit door, there's a little lounge there. And we'd love to take time to congratulate you, give you a Bible. And there's one little thing we do as a church. I don't know of any other church in England that do this. We'd love to give you a light bulb. And what we would encourage you to do is to, over there, there's a wall. We call it the uh, 
Jesus Life wall, and we would encourage you to pop in that light, and we will celebrate and go crazy. This is what we're all about as a church. The moment the lights go on in your life, we want to celebrate that fantastic decision. So it's a way of welcoming you into our big church family. And we're a pretty cool family. Some of us are a little bit dysfunctional, but that's okay. We've got plenty of room for others. So why not stay behind, meet some of our team, and uh, we just want to welcome you. Wasn't that a brilliant day? What a great day. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for next weekend. Because next weekend, John is going to be bringing the word. And I don't know whether you've not, but I reckon he's on fire. The message he preached on expectation. This is going to be a great weekend to bring friends to. So let's all be uh, getting ready and be in the house for next week. Thanks again for tuning in. And if you said the salvation prayer today, we'd love for you to email connecttofaith at soulchurch.com so we can talk to you a little bit more about this incredible decision that you've just made. Yeah, you know, and if at any point in the service you felt moved to give towards any of our local or global initiatives, then head to soulchurch.com and click on the giving at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope to see you again soon. God bless.